0: Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. Oh, on okay. the air uh, with uh, Brian Hamill, who's on his porch up in, uh, in Rhinebeck, uh, New York. Uh, on a lovely uh, Friday morning, and uh, Brian, uh, welcome to Paris, if only metaphorically.
1: Uh, well, I love Paris, so I'll be I'll be happy to be there metaphorically. I wish uh, yeah. I wish I was there in person.
0: I wish you were here as well. We wish a, a lot of Americans could be here.
1: Yeah, bit, I'm we're sure. a
0: little bit shy of Americans these days.
1: Yeah, well, I look forward to the next time I do go. Taking a long walk around the city with you, the city you love, and the city I love. I look forward to that.
0: And uh, you'd you'd, be, you'd you'd be the second Havel to meet me here, as we uh, as your great brother that we recently lost, uh, joined me here on a couple of occasions, and we can talk about uh, Pete in in a few moments. Yes. Okay, so we're good. Anyway, so I started to say. Uh, you, you refer to your book, uh, it's something that your brother never used uh, as, in terminology, as somewhat of an impoverished childhood. I know you're one of seven children, six boys and a, and a girl, uh, right. a couple of blocks down the street from me, and I guess what was then called Park Slope uh, in, in, the, in in Brooklyn, uh, the great city. Right. And uh, I mean, it never struck me as being impoverished. It just struck me as, a, uh, it struck me as a somewhat challenging. Uh, uh, you know, a, a blue collar family with all the hard values that you, you learned. But I uh, I didn't perceive it as impoverished. But that that jumped out of me. Did you? In looking back in that, do you see that as an impoverished childhood? Totally. Really?
1: Yeah. We we were, we were, we didn't have any bread in my family. Nobody had bread my mom and dad both had a work mean bread
0: to eat uh, not bread to spend at the racetrack
1: no i mean dough money
0: oh okay okay real bread okay yeah
1: okay <laughs> yeah so yeah no we were impoverished, but uh uh we weren't we weren't poor right <laughs> there's a difference Absolutely. because uh we had books we had uh very smart parents uh we had discipline uh, we had each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We were a tight family. We were like a small gang in the neighborhood. And Park Slope in those days was so not how it is now. Now it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an upscale neighborhood. It's was like it the Carol upper Gardens East Side. now.
0: What is it? What is it now? It, it's
1: it's like it's like the Upper East Side. You know, and
0: uh, yeah, it seemed like you know when I spoke to your brother many many years ago. Uh, we did an interview here in Paris at the hotel de Louvre. And I, I'd asked, I stated at the, at the outset that having reread a number of his books in, in preparation for the program that I, uh, I felt that his great sense of humanity came from, uh, from Anne Devlin. And he sat back and talked for 20 minutes. I have to say a word. Uh, I would suspect that you share that, uh, that passion and love for your mother.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. Um, Uh, my, uh, my mother was like very kind, generous, smart, uh, humorous, and a very enlightened woman. Uh, she was religious. Uh, none of us were, Mm uh, much to her chagrin, but, uh, you know, we were, we were raised Catholic, but, uh, I don't think any of us really embraced it the way she did, uh, because she grew up in Ireland, of right. course, and so did North, my North dad. Ireland, right? Yeah, Belfast. Okay. They both came from Belfast, but they met in New York. They didn't meet in Belfast.
0: Well, I, you know, I noticed that you went to RIT. Uh, tell you, did you go to a Catholic high school or to a local, uh, to the local? No, I,
1: I, I was admitted to a couple of Catholic high schools, but by the time I finished grammar school. Uh, the first sti- stitches I ever got in my life were in the second grade by Sister Virginia Maria. She hit me over the head with a set of keys, <laughs> and uh, I bled all over my white shirt. Uh, yeah, that, that I I had enough of that cured uh, you. Catholic school. Yeah, so, so I where'd you, where'd went you go to high well, school. I went to. Uh, John Jay High School, which is right, uh, about six blocks from where I, we grew up in, in, uh, on 7th Avenue in Park Slope. Okay. Well,
0: uh, when did you get your first camera?
1: Actually, uh, Pete bought me my first camera when I was 16.
0: Wonderful. Do you remember what it yeah.
1: was? Yes, it was a Miranda. Uh-huh. It wasn't a Nikon. I eventually ended up with Nikons, uh. In fact, I got my uh, first Nikon like uh, a year later when I went to RIT. So I was I went to RIT because I I uh, I had asked Pete, hey, I wonder if there are any schools because uh, I was starting to get uh, really into photography after he bought me that Miranda. In terms of compositions, of course, he helped me with all of that stuff because he, he was, was an, artist. an artist. Yeah, yeah, he was an artist at that time, and uh, well. Uh, he was segueing into becoming a writer because, uh, you know, he started uh, in 1960 and uh, uh, on the New York Post. But he still had a, 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 a strong sense of art in his soul and in his uh, he, even even up until the the last week of his life, he was still sketching.
0: Well, I mean, so, you know, to some degree, when you when you read him, uh, you can see the visual. The visual-minded play, or at least I do.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, of I did what other did that. Yeah. He says and what he
0: writes. Uh, RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology. For those. Who yeah. Are not great.
1: Grade school. Great school. And uh, I was, I was, I was trying to make up my mind whether or not to go to the University of Arizona
0: because
1: uh-huh. I wanted to get out of New York for, for you know, because of the cold weather. I figured, oh, a change of pace. I'll see some different people. Or I was going to go to the art center school in Los Angeles, uh, which is also uh, warm weather. And uh, and then I asked him, do you think there are any schools uh, in the east where I can go to school so I don't have to go so far away because of the family, friends, you know, my neighborhood? So he said, yeah, there's a school in, uh, and Pete again, Pete recommended. He said the school in Rochester, I think it's not the University of Rochester, right. but I think it's called Rochester Institute of Technology. So we, I immediately did some research. Uh, of course, in those days, no computers, so it, it wasn't at my fingertips. So I, have to, I had to put some effort into finding out about it, which I did. And uh, at the last minute, I decided, you know what? Uh, I can still come home for Christmas and holidays, that kind of thing. I think i will go to RIT. Right? And I applied and all three of those schools I was accepted into. Uh, so my, my idea of going away to college for warm weather went right out the window because Rochester was 10 times colder than New York City.
0: <laughs> but, you know, but I think one of the things about Rochester that maybe people forget now, uh, because IBM and Eastman Kodak were were based there, uh, uh a, exactly. a very, very, very strong cultural uh, imprint uh, in order to be able to attract the kind of people that they wanted uh, as employees. And I don't know if you were there when Chuck Mangione was with the Rochester Philharmonic? Uh,
1: I don't remember. I don't. I, it didn't cross my mind at the time. Uh, but I, no, so I, I, I don't have a memory of that. Putting those two elements together, a uh, Rochester and Chuck Mangione.
0: Yeah, because you were a, I uh, mean, you know, a music guy. We're only about a, a year apart. You're the older one, right? Here. But we uh, went yes. to the uh, the Fox Theater and the Paramount, and we. Uh, I was absolutely. A, I was a duop lead singer. I had the. I could do the falsetto uh, stuff, and you uh, know, uh, I, I think of music, and I those those songs are 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 so pre- prevalent, so pronounced in my mind. And bring oh, those memories. Still in my mind, too. You know, and I don't know what, I don't what the Flamingos, gonna... the
1: Cadillacs, the oh, yeah. Students, Frankie Lamar and the Teenagers, well, Mary, the and K and Teen the Golden Force. Gassers
0: for Submarine Race Watchers. When he com- he's coming out of the hatch of the submarine with his right. straw hat on and all of those wonderful songs are there. So I guess leading in now, that'll leading into music. So, what is your first recollection of the Beatles? Was it Sunday Night with Ed Sullivan, like most of us?
1: Yes. Uh, well, no. Actually, I, I saw them on the Huntley-Brinkley report before Before that. They were on the Huntley-Brinkley report, which I watched while I was in Rochester. Wow. And uh, it was, I think, uh, a couple of days after uh, JFK got assassinated. So I, w- I got excited by them, but uh, no, it was a couple of days before. And then the assassination of JFK, whom I loved, and uh, I got bummed out about, uh, so bummed out about that, like so many of us did. Sure. Uh, and, and it took me another couple of weeks of trying to cool out from that uh, assassination thing and to get back to my real life uh, of day-to-day struggles. Uh, I was in school. I was 17. And then I got back into the Beatles. I, I, I had seen them on the huntley brinkley report, but uh, I started hearing their music. On the radio and so forth, and uh... what, what,
0: what was it about the Beatles that, for you, was I—I I don't know if transformative is the word—but coming from the you know the musical backgrounds that we came from, where we'd listen to Sinatra, obviously, as your brother wrote eloquently, of course, and uh, and uh, a rhythm and blues, and uh, obviously the har- harmonies by most of the black singers from the Bronx and Brooklyn and places like that. You immediately recognize that these guys were something special, unusual, musically and personally.
1: Totally, totally, and and, and very original too. But they did covers of other songs, but but their original songs were, would grab me, and they did. They did, you know, some of those great early Beatles songs would just, uh, you know, stay in my brain, hmm. and uh, and. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I'm, I'm not going to sing along, and try to try to give you any kind of examples. But you know all the songs. Well,
0: I may I may sing at some point. I may I may please, sing something to I, uh, just to to fill out the program. Yeah, uh, a little bit of uh, uh, Little Anthony or something. The flip side of Tears on My Pillow, which was yeah. hit in New York. You know, just the kinds of people in the world. But uh, when uh, you know, in, in reading in reading the book, uh, and obviously why, looking at the book. Dream Lovers, John and Yoko in, in New York. Photographs that you took, I believe, in 1972.
1: Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I photographed the concert, which is, which is his, uh, his last big concert alone without the Beatles, mm-hmm. was at Madison Square Garden, August 30th, 1972. I photographed them together in their apartment on Bank Street on October 13th. 1972.
0: And how did that come about? I think it was it was a parade magazine assignment, or?
1: <laughs> yes, I got a parade magazine assignment. Uh, and uh, I was very excited about that. So, and I and on the subway on the way over, I, I, I got 30 uh, 8x10s made up from the lab I was using, and I was going to lay them on them from the concert. But on the subway on the way over to Bank Street, uh, I had. I had these flashback moments of, of uh of when I first heard of the Beatles, which was, you know, uh oh, nine years earlier, nineteen sixty three. So I I, I flash back also to a sticker when I came home for Christmas after my first year of uh college, uh there was a sticker when I was walking from Grand Central, because in those days, no Amtrak was the New York central and it took forever. It was like an 11 hour train ride. And I was on my way to the subway to head back to Brooklyn. And I saw a couple of stickers and all it says, the Beatles are coming. Beatles are coming. No date, no time, no location. But I thought, Oh, cool. The Beatles are coming. So we got to find out about that. And, uh, Anyway, cut to uh, October thirty thirteenth, nineteen seventy two. Uh, I photographed the uh, the concert on October uh, August thirtieth, nineteen seventy two. So I took uh, thirty prints with me to lay on John and Yoko, but I didn't want to like stick them in their face as I you know as I walked in the door. So I you know I I waited about forty five minutes for the right. You know, for the right time to do it, and uh, they—they love them. I mean, uh, if you look at, in my book, you have—I have a couple of uh, photographs of them looking at those actual prints, and they're right. sitting.
0: I have the, I have the book at, in front of me, You're, sitting uh, on that bed. You know what you mentioned—I hadn't been aware of that, but uh, that uh, Lennon is actually uh, an Irishman. You know, from Liverpool, I guess. A lot of Irishmen that got to, uh, to became Liverpudlians. Uh, but he right. struck me as a no bullshit stand up guy. Uh, although you apparently only had three meetings with him to, for these these shoots, um, you probably didn't develop this real tight personal friendship. But it seems to me that you you really grasped something uh, unique in his personality, or or consistent with you know your upbringing, a street kid.
1: Absolutely, everything you just said was uh, right on the money. Yeah, he was a uh, he was a no bullshit guy, and uh, and he was very friendly. When I walked in the door of of, uh, of the Bank Street Department, I was expecting, as I had been working on movies for two years at that point, doing, doing stills on movies, and I, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be similar to a a shoot on a movie. We have makeup people, hair people, assistants, uh. uh
0: you know,
1: water bears. He, uh, he, But uh, there was none of that, and there was no bullshit. I walked in the door. He put out his hand, and he said, uh, Hi, Brian, I'm John. <laughs> As yeah. if I didn't know that. I said, Hey, John. And then he said, Would you like a cup of, uh, a cup of tea? Of course. Uh, I declined that. Uh, it was a kind offer, I thought. That kind of put me at ease. And I was looking around for all the entourage. Nobody else was in the apartment but Yoko. So I immediately, like, uh, got more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you Because know, when, when you have a parade of people, it's like uh, an entourage. They all have their ideas. Oh, why don't you do this? Oh, let me fix that. You know, that kind of, you know. Uh, the wrecking crew, I call them. But uh, in any case, uh, he, he was totally nice. They were both. Yeah, totally. and
0: Talk a little bit about Yoko, because, you know, she had such a, well, she got a bad rap from all these people that were like Beatles fans and, and you know, didn't really see who she was. <laughs> who, what kind, who was she? I, you know, I, what kind of a woman was, is and, and was uh, Yoko?
1: I thought she was lovely. And it, it, it's when you meet somebody and they're nice, so you go, okay, they're, they're being nice. And that's, you know, that's cool. But let's see how she acts. Uh, and I was already in my brain thinking. I want to not only shoot them in their environment where they live, but I would like them to go out on the street with me and see how they react with other people.
0: Yeah, which, okay,
1: uh, you, you mentioned, yeah,
0: talk about some of those experiences when you were, one particularly stuck in my mind with a guy who was trying to be so uh, aloof and cool and not acknowledging uh, John.
1: Okay, but preceding that, mm-hmm. Taryn, when we were walking around the West Village before we got into that particular shop, Several people came up and and talked to them and and said asked them questions, and both of them, told by John and Yoko, answered the questions as if what the person who was asking them seemed just as important as they, as hate as they were. Yeah, they were a celebrity couple, but they never acted as if they never talked down to anybody they never like made the person who asked the question. Uh, feel less important than they themselves were. Which I was was very impressed with. And she, she, they both showed humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, To answer the other question, uh, I looking at mom and pop shop windows along the way and I have some of those photographs on on Bleaker Street. But then Yoko spotted a sweater, a set of sweaters hanging in a little shop. And, uh, She went in to take a look, and then John gestured to me outside the shop for me to go in next, and I have a picture of that gesture. Uh, You see Yoko, actually, her back going into the shop and him waiting for me to enter next. And when I went in, I had a couple of Nikons around my neck, and there was a guy in a hammock, lying in a hammock. He had a hat on pulled down, and when he saw me with the Nikons, he went to get up out of the hammock. And then when he saw John... A split second, quarter of a second later, over my shoulder, he tried to play Johnny Cool, laid back down in the in the hammock, and he was like, he was trying to. It was like the opposite of a, of a of a fan who uh, comes up to a celebrity and, and and they can't cut the fan loose sure. the fan wants to tell them all about their upbringing, their experience, their musical abilities, whatever you know, and and they you know. They, on their way so they, they don't want to be impolite but it's hard to shake them loose sometimes but this guy did just the opposite he was trying to play Johnny cool and lay down in the hammock like as if he was unimpressed that John and Yoko had just entered the shop uh, and I, I noticed John standing by the door with his arms folded he never the guy never said hello so he didn't say hello to the guy you know and then Yoko, I don't even know she picked up on it to tell you the truth, but she she asked she asked uh, the guy lying in the hammock, "Do you work here?" <laughs> and he said, "I own it." And then still didn't get up out of the hammock, and she went over, continued looking at the sweaters, and another guy came from the back of the store, and he came up front, and he was he saw Yoko and immediately said, "Oh, hi!" You know, he was, he was friendly and. They started looking at the sweaters and John stayed there. And I picked up my street guy antenna, because I'm a street guy basically at heart. Picked up the vibe that John was a little unhappy with a uh, hammock dude. Hammock dude stayed there. He never got out of the hammock. He didn't try to engage anybody, Yoko, John, or myself. And, uh, you know, Yoko. Uh, Quickly picked out a sweater she liked, purchased it, uh, and we got outside. The said to me, what an asshole, meaning yeah, the I guy in the hammock. And I, and I knew exactly what he meant because I picked up his vibe. I, you know, the guy could have got up and been a professional. Sure. He didn't have to say, hey, it's John and Yoko. He didn't have to, you know, like. Just be a human being. Yeah, just be a human being. Yeah, complicated. The only thing he said was, I own it. Yeah. Uh Anyway, to make a long story short, we uh, John let it go pretty quickly. He didn't, uh, as we say in Brooklyn, he didn't run it in the hole. He, you know, he oh, just no. he he let it go, and uh, and that was the end of it. And, Sounds uh, like
0: he, he was a New Yorker in waiting.
1: I, exactly. You know, well, we talked about it. I asked him. Uh, I never, first of all, I was never given a time limit. You know, on a lot of celebrity shoots, they say you have thirty-five minutes. Sure. You have four. Minutes. But he never, neither one of them ever like made a, uh, a made that evident to me. Uh, and I said, "Do you do you have any other spots that you like in the village that I can?" He said, "Yeah, why don't we go over to the end of the pier on Bank Street? It's it's kind of like one of our favorite spots in the village." I said, "Sure." So we walked over, and he let the other thing go with the incident. He carried the bag up with the sweater in it that go purchase, and. Uh, he went on his way, he let that go. It didn't it didn't it didn't faze him. It didn't he didn't he didn't let it eat his brain up, you know. Well, and uh and we, we went back to we went over to the uh the pier, I took some photographs of him coming at me, uh, and the sun was getting pretty, it was starting to set. And uh and then when we got to the edge of the river there, because in those days uh the Banks was like desolate, you know. Uh-huh. Uh it was 1972. I mean, the whole that whole waterfront has changed now. But anyway, uh, I remember one. He said, "This this river is magical," and and I took well, my favorite photograph, or well, one of my favorites of the of the two of them together, uh, is is that photograph that's on the back cover, uh, where they're looking at the river.
0: Right. Yeah. What well, did this remind him of? The mercy.
1: He didn't bring that up, but I, and I. Didn't and I'm
0: not going to sing that song.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but they they were such a cool couple, and they were they they were both. You know, I'm a skeptical street guy, so I, I like people to show. You know, I, I like to pull their covers sometimes and sure. see where they're really at, but I didn't have to because they both you saw was uh, what you got. Yeah, and they were both. They had humanity. Mm-hmm. And they, they were nice, and they were pleasant. They were exceedingly nice to me, but they were nice to everybody that stopped them on the street. They didn't get mobbed or anything. Sure, there wasn't like a well, crowd. It's New York. Yeah, and 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 it, you know, I just said to my in my own head, "Wow, they're both New Yorkers." Absolutely. You know?
0: uh, the book is Dream Lovers, John and Yoko in New York City. I want to come back to that, but I want to segue to your work in in the film industry. Uh, you became a still photographer, most notably, even if people don't know your work, the iconic shot of Diane and uh, and Woody looking at the Manhattan Bridge. Uh, everyone knows. You've no, the,
1: the 59th Street Bridge there. Was, oh, it's not the pack Bridge.
0: Why did I say Manhattan? Okay, excuse me. Shame on me. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, you also worked with Barry Levinson, I believe, on Sleepers and, and Scorsese on, on Raging Bull. Talk uh, a little bit about the process of being a still photographer and uh, how it changes from filmmaker to filmmaker. You've had this long collaboration uh, with Woody Allen. I come back to that particular shot of the 59th Street Bridge and what was Gordon Willis's black and white shoot. And how does that influence what you do? So, what is your, what is your like from day one, you arrive on the set, uh, what is your mission and does it differ?
1: from uh, filmmaker to filmmaker. Yeah. It's different from filmmaker to filmmaker, but then if you do a repeat thing, like I did with Woody, uh, it was like, uh, hanging out with a friend, mm-hmm. but the first, the first, uh, you know, he was very quiet. I, I met him on Annie hall and, uh, we were both like, you know, feeling each other out. Like sometimes like it's the first round of a, of a boxing match, sure. you know, uh, uh, Sometimes there's one round knockouts, and sometimes there's the people, the fighters, just feel each other out. And he was very quiet, uh, and I was quiet. I, I didn't, well, I didn't do a lot of talking on movie sets mm-hmm. because photography takes concentration, believe it or not. And also, you have, you don't want to let a moment go by that could be the decisive moment. So, uh, but you it's approach it with a with quiet a and concentrate.
0: Do you approach it with something in, in mind, or are you fed? Uh, does Woody say to you, oh, look, Brian, I want to get this and this and this? I mean, you do it no. your way.
1: never once did he suggest a photograph to me. Okay, so you just never, it. never, never, not one time. Not even the, not even the, the shot for the, the poster from Manhattan, the so, sort of a famous uh, photograph now. Uh, sort of famous, he, very famous. He, did, he, did, he didn't tell me. It was at three forty-five in the morning when we shot that. Uh, that when I shot that photograph.
0: Where do where does that, for example, you know, in, in Willis's cinematography, who's a, I, I thought a, one of the greats. Um, oh,
1: Gordon Willis is brilliant. You, he, you look
0: particular the black and white there, and then you look at the Godfather with the coloring and the the sepia tones and everything else. That that particular shot appears in the movie. So where 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 did it separate? Where did you come in to pick out? The shot uh, was just after he had done the. Uh, he it, it made the shoot. How did that evolve?
1: Um. Well, when I when I when I took the picture, I knew right away that I had just got uh, gotten a good photograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually wrote about it too. I did a thing on the Huffington Post. You could read about it on uh, taking that uh, particular That's photograph. True. But but yeah, I knew it was going to be special. So when I got the contact sheets back, I showed them to Woody because this is is now my third movie with him. Mm -hmm. First was Annie Hall and Interiors and the third was Manhattan. We were already into a friendship. You know, he he was very quiet. uh, You know, he was from Brooklyn. I was from Brooklyn. And I I talked to him like a normal guy. I I didn't, I, I, I never talked to any actor or anybody like, hey, they're more important than me. Never did. Never on anybody, on any movie set, uh, and you could ask any of them that. And I think that's why I got along with so many because I just uh, was I was myself. I didn't kiss ass. I didn't brown nose. Didn't do any of that bullshit.
0: Well, but, you know, with Scorsese, uh, another you know New York guy, and uh, Levinson <laughs> being Jewish, he's almost a New York guy. Uh, yeah, in that particular scene. So uh, you you're with a lot of a lot of street guys.
1: Yeah, and, exactly. and, and Barry Levinson is basically a street guy. He's oh, from sure. Baltimore. Well, and you, know, diner, you know, <laughs>
0: Diner and Tin Men, and then Sleepers, obviously.
1: Well, you also yeah. shot
0: The Natural, which, uh, you know, it's got Yeah, a, that was uh, the
1: first time I worked with him. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was the first time I worked with Barry, and I hit it off with him. We're still friends. Uh, I, I, love, you know.
0: I, I love Richard Farnsworth in that film. Did you get a lot of shots of Richard?
1: Oh yeah, many of course. He's a funny guy. Oh, he's, nice uh, guy. He really did a film powerful, called "The nice Gray," man.
0: "The Gray Fox," where he's he's a bank oh, robber. Yeah. Oh a train robber. Uh, yeah. He had a wonderful quality.
1: Yeah, he used to be a stuntman. man. Yeah, exactly. I didn't. I I didn't know that when I worked with him on "The Natural," but uh, we had many conversations, and he was he was just a nice guy. Real nice man. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And the lives. same
1: was. The same uh, may he rest in peace and the same with Wilfred Brimley, may he rest well, just, in yeah, peace.
0: Yeah, we just lost him,
1: right? Yeah, he was he was a terrific guy too. Well speaking uh, of
0: terrific guys, you know, uh, August the fifth was a sad day for both of us. Uh that we lost your brother, who I yeah. was privileged to claim as a friend and uh I And I, he I,
1: lo- he loved you. He well, was the one who, he was the one who put me hip to you. I didn't know about you. Until
0: well, his, his daughter, from, oh, you back it. back to Pete. And Pete wrote a wonderful book called uh, Why Sinatra Matters. And as you said, the last thing he wrote in, uh, in this particular book is Why uh, John Lennon Still Matters as the intro yes. to your book. So let me ask you that question. Uh, yeah. Why does John Lennon still matter?
1: Well, I mean, I'm not going to quote Pete word for word because Pete was Pete, but right. John Lennon still matters because he he was uh, a brilliant songwriter. It was I I liked his singing because if you hear uh, in some of the Beatles songs the edgy voice, that's John Lennon's voice, and and a a lot of them uh, a lot of those songs would have been sort of pop fluff without that edgy voice of John Lennon's. And you can hear it again, like in the David Bowie uh, song "Fame." He's got like an edgy kind of voice, which
0: well, is—it's a, it's a little of a street voice. There's that—that that rough edge to it,
1: right? Exactly.
0: You know, the, and, uh, uh, there's there's passion, there's soul. It's not just a a bland melodic uh, a, approach to uh, to what he's written. Oh, and, and, you, yeah, and
1: also what he's written, what you know. Look, in my life i mean is there a better song no, no. than my life you know no, I, it's you know, like uh, imagine the, i can remember driving imagine, and, you know when i was in, the hero yeah yeah no he
0: he's wonderful but stuff. even the
1: songs with the beatles help i right. mean that was that was that was like uh, you know that was his internal thoughts trying to come out verbally and and into a song cuz the guy wanted help right uh and I like that about him. he was very honest uh he's not was not a show busy type guy he was not a show off uh and where that's were why so mad the night he was killed I was in Rhine rhinecliff uh, uh, I was so married then, and I was with my uh my three week old daughter wow. and uh, I had her on my lap. And I was in a rocking chair that we had, and Betsy, my uh, my ex-wife, but still one of my best friends. Uh, she has a beautiful gallery here in uh, in Rhinebeck, but she was she wanted to go. You know, uh, I gave her a break. I said, "Go out with your girlfriends." And I I had I was taking care of Kara, and I was doing my corny uh, dad thing. You know, uh, making faces and trying to get smiles out of my little three-week-old daughter. And I usually only listened to albums in those days, but I, I it was easier from where I was sitting just to turn on the radio. And when I turned on the radio, the news came screaming at me and uh, uh, about John Lennon dying. I, I, I was like in a state of shock and uh, I never cried like this before, but the tears seemed like they went vertically out of my eyes with a uh, force that I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was shocked.
0: Have you discussed but, that moment with your
1: daughter? Yeah, I, t- yeah, I told her about it because I wrote yeah. twice about it. Uh, I wrote I wrote about it about uh, 16, 17 years ago, and I had an exhibit uh, in a gallery in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Monroe Gallery, which is also a great gallery. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, so I did it one – they had asked me, the owner um, – Monroe had asked me to do a one-page thing about John Lennon so I wrote that little story which is in the book because mm-hmm. uh, I asked the, the publisher James Smith at uh, ACC Books if I could include that and he said sure you know so I, I write about that incident about you know when I discovered the uh, and I'm glad you're not going to bring up Terrence and you better not bring up the swine's name who killed him because I, I I I won't go on any show if his name is mentioned. Uh, he, he's a, well, his, what's his name one. I don't remember. Yeah, well, let's not bring we're, it up. No, we're not. Well, we're, not. we're not. Yeah. Uh,
0: no. well, let me let me close on, uh, on two notes or actually one one theme. Uh, you know, why does uh, Sinatra matter? Why does John Lennon matter? Why does Pete Hamill still matter? And you
1: might want to... Oh, that's nice of you. That's nice no, of you to no, ask it. Field, you know,
0: maybe you'll tell that story about the $20 bill. I believe it was a 20 But
1: answer the first part of the question. No, it was, 10, it was a $10 bill. Okay. It was right, a $10 inflation, bill. Inflation, I'll tell inflation. you the story quickly. Sure. Uh, uh, in 1959, which was my last year of grammar school... And you were 10 years old.
0: No, no, you yeah. were 13 years old.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, 13 years old. And uh, I was go- getting ready to go to high school, but I worked for Pete. I would take the subway over, and do his chores. He wasn't yet a reporter. He was he was the art director for a magazine called Atlantis, a Greek ma- a Greek magazine.
0: Edited by an artist. <laughs> yeah,
1: but he was always busy. He, Pete was always a busy guy all his life. He's he was a workaholic, and uh, anyway to make a long story shorter, he would always make a list of stuff for me to chores for him, dry cleaners, groceries, all the stuff that he didn't have time to do. Cause he was like putting in 15, 16 hour days with this magazine. And, uh, uh, and like I said earlier, I'm a street guy. I'm not the kind of guy, but when we, he, he, he left me, uh, the money pinned to the thing. And one of them was a $10 bill. Uh, to pay for stuff, uh, and uh, I went on my, you know, uh, chore, uh, walk, and uh, you know, and the East Village in those days was very interesting and uh, very diverse, all kinds of characters, beatniks and th- different ethnic groups. So I loved going there and doing that job. I, I well, I, I love my brother. So you were still I,
0: in Brooklyn I, at the time, obviously.
1: I was still in, living in Brooklyn, but I would. Usually when I finished the chores, head back to Brooklyn so I could hang out with my friends. But, uh, anyway, I lost $10. I couldn't believe it. I retraced my steps. And in those days, $10 was a lot of dough. So I I was like upset with myself more than anything. And, uh, I, you know, I retraced my steps in the street. There, didn't find the $10, um, got back to Pete's apartment and, uh, you know, I said, What am I gonna do? Leave the guy a note. I said, No, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wait till he comes home. Uh and but he was used to me splitting right back to Brooklyn, you know. And uh but I waited and, I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited and I was like I had to tell him. I had to verbally tell him. And uh he came in the door, he said, Oh, Brian, you're still here. I thought you'd be back in Brooklyn. I said, Yeah, I'm still here but- Pete, and I started crying again. I said, Pete, I lost $10. He said, oh, don't worry about it. He tried to hug me. Stop. It's it's nothing. I said, Pete, $10. That was a big deal in those days. We're talking 1959. And just to prove to me that it didn't mean anything to me, he took out his beat-up wallet, extracted a $10 bill, ripped it into about 10 pieces, And threw it up in the air and laughed hysterically as the pieces floated down to the floor. And he said, uh, don't worry about $10. And uh, he said to me, and don't have much concern about money. It's not that important.
0: Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, it's been great to catch up. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the word humanity is attributed to, to John and Yoko, certainly to your mother, and, and of course, to Pete, and in these horrible times, uh, from what I miss most is that, that voice, that voice of reason, that voice of understanding, that strong, strong uh, set of values. But never in a, uh, in a, in a way that's inappropriate or, or, or beats you down. There's an, a, kind of a professorial quality about what he did and, and always a great sense of humanity, which I suspect that all you Hamill guys and, and one girl. Uh, at least the ones I've met have, haven't met. Yeah, I think
1: woman, we, I I'm think sure we do. I, I think we do, and we do attribute that to, to our mother. Yeah. We had a great yeah. mother, great woman. Uh, Brian, yeah.
0: it's great to catch up.
1: Yeah. But, Did uh, I answer th- your John Lennon, why he still matters adequately? Yeah. Yeah. About about the great songs and his edgy voice and all that, and just uh, you know, I, I think he would have been a, a, a musical genius. He already gave us enough genius. But listen. When he made it to eighty, you know, by then he should he probably have written one or two novels, and also he was an artist. I mean, you know, if—if if, you know, we—we we lost a dude at forty years old, man. Right. I mean, just—just just think of where it would have been at with John Lennon still around. Yeah, you—you well, you you know. look
0: at the growth, and you look at—you know—the—the uh, the things that he could, could adapt, and the songs would get richer and get deeper. Uh, but they're still right. there, you know. Uh, you know, we uh, still, as you say, in in, in my life and uh, imagine, and, uh, yeah. yeah. Songs, it, it's magical. All right, Brian, yeah. uh, go take your walk. Uh, just we'll clean this up. You won't hear that. I'll send okay. you this. once it's ready. I'll send it to you. You can you can listen to it, and then I'll uh, it'll I'll I'll post the promotion on uh, in Tuesday's newsletter, and I'll run it as a spe- as a special event on on Friday.
1: Okay, and should I have Carol's uh, legate send you some still photographs?
0: Yeah, if you want to send me some stills, I, I can incor- incorporate them into the, uh, you know, not a lot, not to overwhelm, but I want people to go buy the book.
1: Of course. All right, good, Terrence. Okay. And thanks a million for doing this. Thank I appreciate it. And,
0: and stay well. Stay safe and come right, see you us.
1: Too. Okay, bye-bye. Take care, bye. bye.